Packet Pusher sponsor Tufin has pioneered a policy-based approach to network security management using automation and analytics. As a result, you can make network changes in minutes instead of days, reliably and securely. Tufin, the security policy company. Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. In the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the phrase, don't panic, is written across the front to help the reader keep a cool head in the face of dangers of galactic hitchhiking. This may sound a bit like dealing with IT problems, right? Especially when the root cause is some cryptic error or unexpected failure scenario. Turning to technical folks and their blogs is a great way to not panic aha, when it comes to dealing with the trough of woe. And in this episode, we'll talk to a prolific technical blogger to get an inside view into what happens behind the scenes. I'm Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host who blocks USB ports using pieces of old Haichu, Ethan Banks. He's at EC Banks on Twitter. And together, we talk to coworkers not on our team to break down technical silos and make IT, well, suck less. Welcome to Data Nuts, and let's jump into things. As stated earlier, we'll be talking about technical engineering and blogging. And my guest today is William Lamb, I think the number one VMware blogger in the world. Welcome. Who is it that you are and what is it you do, sir? Hey, Chris. Hey, Ethan. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here on today. Uh, so my name is William Lamb. I run a personal blog uh, called virtuallyghetto.com, and I work for VMware. I'll be coming up on uh, eight years this year. Uh, yeah, well, wow. Yeah, eight years at VMware, which is pretty much a lifetime. <laughs> Been using uh, VMware software for quite some time, as you know, and uh, I work as a solutions architect within the VMware cloud on AWS team at VMware. Yeah, and I see sometimes on the Twitters you have the photos of like the anniversary cubes. What do you get at ten? Is it when do you get the Voltron level cube? <laughs> I'm waiting for those ones. Voltron cubes. Those sound really <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's actually it's funny because it's it's actually one of the most sought out things, and and there's been a couple of like twists and turns with with these anniversary gifts. I think initially we had a, an artist put these together, and they're they're really limited, right? And initially you get um, three smaller cubes, you know, kind of represent the old school VMware logo. Uh, at your four-year anniversary. So everybody was like super excited. I was super stoked when I got mines. And then at one point, I think they ran out of them and they they got replaced with, like, I think, a picture frame. It's still really cool, um, but people really like the cubes, right? And, and I kind of feel bad because the, the cubes were something that a lot of people kind of joined VMware, like, hey, I'm going to get to my four years just to get these cubes. And they weren't giving them out anymore. And And some people were actually like, finding them on eBay because uh, I guess they're worth <laughs> somebody said the other day they're worth like 400 bucks for like the smaller set which is like whoa and and for your eight-year anniversary uh you get these bigger versions of the cubes which I'm super looking forward to I think Alan just got his eight years actually because I started a couple months before he did and then obviously for like your 10-year and 12-year VMware actually gives you a grant I believe I forget what the amount was but it's something ridiculous and and you can kind of donate it to your alma mater or whatever so yeah, no, it's really, really fun just not only hitting your anniversaries, but like the cubes are like the thing at VMware and people are like stalking. You're like, hey, do you want your cubes? Do you want to sell them? It's, it's, it's crazy. Wow. <laughs> you guys first started talking about cubes. I was thinking cubicle for some reason. I'm like, he's got an office <laughs> and you get to upgrade to like the Voltron cubicle. Is it like decorated? What is that? Like, you know, anyway, transformers and all that's right. that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, William, what, when back in, back in the beginning here, you, you made a decision at some point to get into technology as a profession. What, what motivated you to make that decision? 
Uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting question. You know, when I, when I think back, I, I don't know if there was like a particular like moment in time where I kind of decided. I think it's a bunch of little things. I, I think when I think back, uh, you know, as a kid, you know, I used to take a lot of things apart, uh, you know, toys, sometimes not my toys, my brother's toys, and don't always be able to put them back together, but always kind of like intrigued in that nature. Didn't really have anything to do with technology per se. You know, later, later on, I, I remember kind of being interested in computers not because I wanted to kind of take it apart, but it was mostly like as a kid wanting to kind of play like Oregon Trail and Matt Blaster at the time. And we used to go to the computer labs all the time because we only got to visit it once a week. And uh, you know, at the time we were learning how to type. And so, you know, you couldn't play your games until you, you, you kind of passed a course. And so I think for me, it was sort of like, hey, you know, if I learn how to type, I can spend more time playing the games. And so that kind of got me interested. And, and during college, I think that's really where I, you know, at least in my mind, it was like, hey, I want to get into the technology space. Uh, and a lot of it was just kind of like, you know, just running servers. And and at the time, you know, I was kind of aware of like, hey, there's these physical servers that we had to run. We were running like file servers for, for various folks within our dormitory, just for like hosting files and sharing content, especially for like uh, our computer science classes. And we were just running these servers. We bought them on eBay with whatever we had. And we realized like, hey, there's these things are hot. They're, they're literally living in our closets and we were like drilling holes into the wall we weren't supposed to to, to get airflow <laughs> and that's really where I came to learn about VMware and you know you can kind of say the rest is history that you know really got me thinking about you know servers and and the concept of virtualization I was just like super excited for the technology at the time and this was like around you know 2004 2005 time frame so yeah. you kind of say kind of the genesis of like me getting into virtualization at, at that age yeah, you, yeah, you're 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 a purist. You love technology for its own sake, and if it wasn't for those pesky users, we'd all have a lot more fun. <laughs> exactly. Was that kind of the genesis to going into blogging? Were you kind of running into problems and and talking about it? Because I, I noticed your content is definitely focused on. I've kind of run into a problem. I heard about a problem. Here's kind of why this exists, and here's how to solve it. But that's more modern times. I'm, I'm more curious, like how did you get into that? And, and also, virtually ghetto. Can you tell me? What what that means to you? <laughs> oh boy, uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I you know, like I said, I, you know, I I've always been intrigued by things that that's both good and bad for me, just personally. As I you know, we talk about it, and I like to solve problems. So you know, I like to look at you know certain issues and kind of seeing like you know, is there a, a more novel way of solving a particular problem? And and I love the technology and love geeking out, but at the end of the day, I love to solve a particular problem that usually lends itself to having a bigger impact. And so. When I started to get into like, you know, the VMware community at the time, and there weren't that many bloggers, right? You can count them on your hands. These are like the Scott Lowe's of the world, Duncan Epping. There's there only a couple of those folks at the time. And the communities at the time was still starting out. And so I spent a lot of my time in the VM team community. Um, you know, I was working for a lot of large enterprises at that point, you know, managing a fairly significant sizable VMware infrastructure. And we will come across fairly unique interesting problems, maybe sometimes earlier problems that people haven't seen. And I saw a lot of folks within the community all running into either similar challenges or things that are very relatable, where it's like, oh, I think I might have solved that. Um, and I can kind of share some of that learnings. And so I spent a lot of years actually just, you know, watching the forums like everybody did, and just helping others where I could. And the blogging thing never really came to me per se like I you know read Duncan's blog and and Scott's blog but I never thought of myself as a blogger and in fact I even like said hey I'm not going to get into that but I found out that I ended up sharing a lot of scripts and automation that I've written for the community uh, just stuff that I've used that I just share with the community and I started to put together you know VMT and docs 
that says, you know, here's a script, here's how you use it or answering questions. And um, funny enough, Duncan reached out and he's like, hey, you know, have you thought about doing this blogging thing or just starting a blog? And I said, no, no, I'm not even, I was like, no, not interested. I don't think that's stuff <laughs> we're going to take off. Like, you just shut down. Like, You're like, nope, not happening. Yeah, exactly. It's like, not me. Like you guys are doing fantastic. I read your blog. You guys can do it. And he just kept pushing me and he's like, Hey, let me share some of your content. And so a couple of times he would take some content, you know, regurgitate a little bit and, and make it available to his readers. And so I, you know, got some exposure that way. But again, I was like, no, 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 this is not for me. And eventually I said, fine, let me see what this is, where this is going to go. Uh, and I think it was like 2007, 2008 is when I just started. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to invest much money into this at all. So I looked at like Google, Google blogger. It was the platform at the time. And just started sharing, you know, the stuff that I would normally share. And he just kind of really enjoyed it. And I think it's just constant sharing of information. And it's 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 kind of two-way, two-way street for me, right? It's not only sharing kind of stuff that I've learned, but I also love the interaction, the commentary uh, from people. And at the time, you know, the forums, you know, this is pre-Twitter, right? And so that's you either get emails or you, or you see comments on the communities. And I was able to take some of the information back and say, oh, you know, here's a problem that a lot of people were, I was seeing that people were running into, you know, maybe I can come up with a solution, share that. And it allowed me to kind of expand my knowledge and also allowed me to share that knowledge with a lot more wider people. And funny enough, I <laughs> really enjoyed it and uh, have been going ever since. But uh, that, that's kind of the genesis of, of, of my blogging, I guess you can say. <laughs> You, you asked me about the name. Which yeah, is, we need to know about the name, too. I mean, yeah, yeah, Virtually Gales. Yeah, it's, it's a funny name because when I started the blog, I, I, I was actually talking to a colleague of mine who I went to college with, uh, Tuan, and we were trying to come up with a name for the blog, right? Because we kind of did like a website first, so like just a basic HTML file, and eventually said, okay, we need to turn this into an actual blog for it to kind of work and for people to actually be able to follow it. Uh, and he was totally against the name, but funny enough, so the story of Virtually Ghetto is interesting. You know, I've actually... I wouldn't say got in trouble, but people have, you know, misread it. And, 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 and when this gets shared up with like a C-level exec, you know, at a company, they're like, who, you know, who the hell is this? Why are you reading this kind of thing? So it's been interesting. Um, but the, the genesis of the name, obviously, virtual, virtually for virtualization. Uh, but the ghetto part is really one of the first projects I had worked on. Uh, if, if you guys remember, there's this product that VMware used to ship called VCB, uh, VMware Consolidated Backup. I like, do remember that, yeah. Yeah, it's like a free, yeah, it's, it's old school now. And, you know, this is before like BDDK and change block tracking, all the goodness. And at, at the time, you know, this was a product that VMware was shipping. I was kind of familiar with it, right? And, and at a high level, what it did was it just took a VM, created a snapshot, copied the VM, VMDKs, right? And then removed the snapshot, right? Pretty, pretty simple at the time. And... I had left the university. I went to school at UC Santa Barbara and I, you know, a colleague pinged me and he said, Hey, you know, we need a backup solution. And we were just starting the journey. You know, that was some time that I spent during college was to help, you know, get the university into virtualization. And we we're kind of like working together and figure out like, how can we um, get these guys to understand the value of virtualization? Cause they literally had like pizza rack servers. One server was literally powering, you know, the sprinklers in the morning, 7am in the morning. <laughs> That, that, like literally so that it was, was heavily percent. utilized. There was just a lot. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's like 99.9% not, not utilized and like perfect <laughs> example. Right. And, and yeah. it was interesting at the time was like, you know, nobody thought about this and I'm like, we're like, this is such wasted capacity. And so that's why I was super in love with VMware. And so it's like, well, we need to prove up. We need to show the business case. Right. So we need to show like, Hey, this works. We can operationalize it. And there's this thing called backups that, you know, we should probably do. 
And uh, they weren't ready to obviously commit uh, dollars amount. We just didn't have any funding, right? And so we're like, well, what can we do? And I was already out of college, you know, working for a large enterprise, got some experience with with, with the various offering, and, and I was familiar with VCB. And I started to do some automation, right? And, and I said, hey, okay, well, let me uh, think about this. And over the weekend, I came up with, with a solution, right, that basically did that. It, it, it was kind of like a poor man's version of VCB at the time. I would SSH to the SX host. I would use a bunch of the CLI commands to basically replicate, you know, conceptually what VCB did. And I kind of, you know, showed it and demoed it and worked. And he's like, oh, cool. He's like, this sounds like VCB. Uh, and I was like, yeah, that's exactly how it works. But he's like, it's kind of like a ghetto version of it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, I wouldn't say it's production grade kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> ghetto sounds perfectly fine. And that word just kind of stuck, uh, you know, just for things that kind of hack things together and, and just help folks move on. And I think that's, you know, the kind of how IT works in general is that, you know, you, you solve just enough to get it going because we're all just so busy, right? And, and that word ghetto just kind of stuck with a lot of the work that I've done, kind of named a lot of my scripts uh, prefixing it that way. And so when it came to naming the blog, I couldn't really think of a better name at the time. So um, <laughs> virtualization, ghetto, sure, that sounds fine. And, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> and rebranding ain't going to happen because that's too hard. Yeah, exactly. Sure. No, no time for that. So. <laughs> so you write about lots and lots and lots of stuff. How do you decide what to write about? How do you prioritize all the different things that you might write about? Ah, uh, that evil word, prioritization. I don't have a priority. I, I, so I guess my personal prioritization is stuff that's just interesting to me at the, at, at the time. It, it could be a conversation. Uh, and, you know, I kind of go back to my earlier point where like, being intrigued and just interested in general, it's both a, a plus and a con to me uh, because I'm just interested in so many different technologies that it's hard to focus on one thing sometimes. And and, and I want to learn about other things, right? And so I think some folks really like, hey, I love storage. I'm just going to deep dive in storage. I'm going to deep dive in networking. I really like a bunch of different things and learning brand new things. And so for me, it's constantly wanting to learn more, you know, I've been spending some time with like, you know, containers, Kubernetes and stuff with functions lately. So in terms of like what I write about, a lot of it is just kind of just the conversations I have on a, on a daily or weekly basis. I, you know, I, I will either hear and talk to our, our field teams, our engineers, our product managers, our customers, random like Twitter conversations. Like I've done things where like Duncan's like, oh, you know, what about this thing? Or like, oh, I wonder about this. And I'm like, damn it, why do you have to wonder? <laughs> and so for, so for me, it's like sort of like what's interesting top of mind. Obviously, a lot of the stuff that I write about, hopefully at some point it has some potential implications for, for either helping our customers, improving the business. Um, so, you know, that is kind of top of mind sometimes, but just generally things I enjoy. And so, you know, there may be some things that I should be working on, but because I hear about this other technology or something else gets announced through like another vendor, I tend to poke at it. You know, it doesn't always lead to like a blog post per se, or doesn't lead to an outcome. But what I found over the years by just kind of listening to the things that I enjoy, I'm able to either better understand a particular piece of technology and offering or solution. And then later on, you know, it could be months, years or whatever, a new problem will come like an actual business problem or an actual challenge from a customer. And I can say, oh, because I tinkered with, you know, A, B and C, and here's the now the problem statement, I'm actually able to take the learnings from the past and put things together and say, oh, you know, here's how you can solve this. And, and I feel like I've done that enough times over the years that I no longer question, you know, me just playing with random things. You know, sometimes I'll play with like random things for like home labs that 
may or may not sound like something that we would ever use in production. And then like a year later, I'm like, oh, great, we are now shipping this or, oh, cool, you know, we can actually use this now. And so I don't really have a prioritization per se. It's sort of just like what's interesting. And, and I have like a backlog of things that I like to work on. So, you know, a lot of people will say like, hey, you're putting a lot of content out there. Uh, but in reality, what's happening is that I'm working on a bunch of different things at the same time. And sometimes I'll get stuck on something and I'll just kind of put it aside um, or I'll make a note of it. You know, I, I use OneNote a lot. And so I'll just jot down some thoughts and I might tinker with something. And if I don't get further along, I just kind of leave it alone and I revisit it and, and different content might get produced different periods of time. So it looks like it's consistent, you know, which it is. But at the same time, I'm working on different things, you know, and then whatever's ready. And I feel like, hey, this is the time. There are some content that's like, I don't think it's ready yet. Or maybe this is too early. I'll put aside and kind of chew on it a little bit. So that's kind of some of the inner inner thinking of, of kind of how I work. Yeah, it's like the hyperscale, just-in-time squirrel prioritization Method. I, I try to I try to gardener find this. No, no, no. It's it's perfect. I want to I want to know where I land on that on that magic scroll quadrant. I think you're a challenger at this point. Maybe, maybe a leader next time. I, uh, I need some, I need some facts, though. You got to help me out. I'll get there. That upper right corner. What about you know at this moment though? What maybe just one or two technologies that you're focusing on today? And I'm also curious why you chose them and what attracts you to those technologies. You know, we're coming into like VMworld territory timeframe, like in a couple of weeks away. You know, I've been spending a lot of time around like event-driven automation. And, you know, the concept is not really new. Um, I don't want to spoil for our session, but sort of we're kind of taking a new look at it, leveraging some net new technologies, you know, things like Kubernetes, OpenFAS. And, you know, these could be like buzzwords, but I think the way that we're looking at it is like just try to solve a problem that we've had for many, many years now and, and many IT professionals, I'm sure you guys have done it too, is like how do we tackle like all these events coming from systems and what could you do with it? And and leveraging some of these net new technologies and you don't even need to know like what OpenFAS or Kubernetes is. It just happens to be like these things are written in, in, in that framework. Um, but we're trying to like up level a little bit and saying how can this be more applicable to our VI admins, to our cloud admins and really let them focus on the actions, right, which are the kind of the business logic of like, what do you want to do if like a VM gets powered on? What do you want to do if a host gets added, right? And trying to simplify some of that infrastructure that people are constantly or have written over the years. Um, it doesn't really add any value per se, right? Because the, the real value is actually like, hey, what, what can I do with it, right? Uh, which is really that function portion of that's more business centric. So I've been spending a lot of time on that. Um, there's some stuff that we're working on that, you know, we plan on open sourcing. So um, kind of short tease on, on some of that work. Some other work that I've been doing is really around, you know, continuously in the home lab, you know, I'm, really involved in that community for a number of reasons. I really want our community to be able to easily access, you know, VMware software. Uh, one of the nice things about, you know, what we produce is everything is in software. And so being able to get that accessible in all sizes of customers, not just the large of larges, but, you know, folks who are just starting out, um, a lot of the practitioners, you know, want to learn more about APIs, want to learn more about automation, just learning more, getting hands on the products. And so I spent a lot of time working on, you know, what's the cheapest way, easiest way um, to get access to hardware such that you can start playing with things like the hypervisor all the way up to like VMC, for example. So I've been looking at a lot of different technologies and evolving technologies like Thunderbolt 3, for example, and being able to easily add 10 gigabit connectivity for a relatively cheap price, especially if you look at like a 
two node direct connect vSAN appliance uh, using like an Intel Nook, which is a really popular platform. Uh, we've also been looking at, um, you know, squeezing more memory into these boxes. So recently discovered that you can actually load these puppies up with like 64 gigs of memory. And these 32 gig DIMM modules are actually dropping in price quite significantly. You know, for a couple hundred bucks, you can, you can have a sizable infrastructure. So continuously kind of watching the consumer space. And there's some stuff that I'm working on. Can't really share all the details yet, but I think it, the, the home lab, the VMware vSphere community, they're going to be really excited about it. And it just allows them to get their hands dirty with this stuff. Right. And like I said, to learn, to prepare themselves before they roll things into production. I think it's really important to uh, to kind of foster this community. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff coming out of that, right? I'm learning some things about it, able to build some new automation to stand up like home labs in like under an hour. So that's been a lot of stuff that I've been working top of mind. I know it's a lot of random stuff, but like it, it all fits together at some point in time, <laughs> uh, whether or not it, you know, we see it now or not. And then obviously there's some stuff happening in the Raspberry Pi, you know, ARM, IoT, Edge. Um, so again, working with some of our Office CTO folks in that space, um, again, just different form factors that people just don't expect. And, then, and it's been really fun because you get to deep dive into hardware. You know, I've never worked with like embedded systems before. And now I realize how painful and, and annoying it is and how important uh, things like standards are. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that I'm just tinkering around with. Um, none of this stuff is technically part of my official day job. Just, just, just as you guys know. Everybody has something to share. And even if you think that this thing that you did that uh, you're happy with, it's like, ah, you're going, ah, it's been blogged about before. I don't, I don't want to add anything because, you know, hey, your perspective is unique. And so if you can take a few minutes to put your own spin on whatever that topic is and share that knowledge with the world. The world's a better place. Take the time to do it. It's good. You definitely have value to add. So, you know, William's a great example of that. He started out doing this and that and then formalized it into a blog. I, I think it's a great story. Chris, what was your takeaway? Well, it was certainly a treat for me. I, I started blogging in 2010 and William was one of those people that I read and was influenced by. I like that the allure of solving problems was really kind of that itch that he was trying to scratch. You know, hey, I'm finding these challenges. I encountered it. Here's how I solved it. Because at a minimum, you have that repository of solutions for yourself to refer back. And as a bonus, others can find them too. And that's just awesome. We're going to pause this podcast conversation for just a moment to hear from sponsor Tufin, the security policy company. As enterprises embrace digital transformation and adopt new technologies, IT and cloud environments become increasingly complex and vulnerable to attack. In this environment, the network change process can become a security-driven bottleneck. Tufin has pioneered a security policy management platform to bring automation and analytics to security and network operations. With Tufin's policy-driven automation, each change can be implemented in minutes instead of days, removing the chance of human error. This can significantly accelerate the development and deployment of revenue-generating apps, providing tangible business value in the nearer term, all while securing the network. How does Tufin deliver on these promises? In at least four ways. One, end-to-end -end security change automation. Automate access changes across enterprise firewalls and hybrid cloud platforms to increase productivity and eliminate misconfigurations. Two, unified security policy. Define and enforce a central zone-based segmentation matrix to strengthen security posture and meet regulatory mandates. 
Three, compliance and audit readiness. Ensure compliance with corporate security policies and external industry regulations with a central console for real-time change tracking, including who made the change, when and why, a complete audit trail, and audit-ready reports. Four, a single pane of glass for managing security policy. Tufin Central Console provides policy analysis, search and optimization capabilities across vendors and platforms, and features an interactive topology map of the network. Tufin, the security policy company. Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. And now, back to the show. William, you got a strong reputation, someone who listens to the community and to customers, and then you you take that back internally to VMware and, and champion those uh, those causes that uh, people have related to you. What, what is that experience like? What what advice can you uh, share for people who want to communicate somehow to their vendor and, and make a change happen? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, it, it, it's an interesting one. Uh, I, I think I, I've been very fortunate um, to have been on the customer front. Uh, I think you guys can probably agree as well. Like, it, you know, having that experience, using the products, feeling the pain points really gives you a perspective. And as much as I appreciate, you know, our product managers, our engineers wanting to, you know, understand the problem, sometimes it can be difficult, right? To put yourselves in the shoes of our customers and say, you know, how do I do this you know, how do I solve this particular problem at scale? You know, I, I think on the engineering front, you know, we're doing some really interesting things of solving really, really hard technical computer science problems. But sometimes how you operationalize these things are, are sometimes difficult and, and figuring out like, what do we need to solve? Um, and kind of having been on the customer front, now, you know, working for, for VMware, you know, I have kind of this opportunity and, and, and what I, and my role today is really driving um, internally what we're calling customer zero. Um, which is kind of this bridge between our field, our customers, our product managers and engineering teams, right? Really working with all these different groups and sharing not only the learnings, the continuous pain points, and just that experience, that empathy of like, what does it mean to, to run a, a production data center? What are all the things you need to consider, right? It's not just solving this hard computer science problem, but there's more stuff around it. It's not just our software, it's other services, other solutions, all that put together, right, is the challenge that we have. And making our customers and product managers really understand that um, in a way that they really can do something about it, right? Whether it's, you know, changing the requirements, um, not only does it meet the business needs, but like, is it going to actually solve the customer's problem from an engineering standpoint? You know, they have a lot of options. There's a number of ways of solving a problem, but maybe the option mm -hmm. that they've selected may not be the most optimal uh, from an optimal, from an operational standpoint, or maybe they didn't consider like, hey, how do I do this from an API? Um, so that's been really, you know, fulfilling and enjoying is to take these challenges and sharing that with the teams uh, and being part of that process, right? It's not just like, here's some feedback, throw it over the wall, and the product manager will try to figure it out. They go take it to the engineer. There's, you know, sometimes there are multiple levels of decoupling, and sometimes the message could get watered down. Um, or some worse, the feedback may not get to the right set of folks. Um, so internally, it's 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 definitely I wouldn't say it's easy, um, but I think you know channeling the customer's voice has 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 always been kind of my north star. You know, I I know that that's how I would have wanted as a customer. And so I'd say for folks who want to share feedback, you know, to a particular vendor, um, you know, be explicit about what you're looking for. You know, oftentimes I think we all want to jump to a um, the solution, like oh yeah, if you did this, you would solve my problem. Oftentimes that may or may not be what we want to do. It may solve your immediate problem, but maybe there's a much bigger 
challenge that we need to kind of consider from a vendor standpoint um, and, and describing the issues that you're running into rather than the solution. Because I think sometimes that gives us and the vendors some flexibility of like, oh, okay, these are the different problems you're seeing. And as we talk to more and more customers, we may pick up an overall theme that says, oh, maybe this is how we should potentially solve it. Um, but also think of it as a more iterative approach. I really enjoy that piece of it. And I think that's the aspect that I really like about the role and, and just this constant engagement, right? Is that we're not always going to get it right. Um, it may take some iteration. Um, and, and, and we're in this world of more agileness, if you want to call it. And, and things are always constantly changed, right? Feedback that you might have received at the beginning of the year. By the time at the end of the year, maybe the feedback has changed or something has changed in the industry. And being able to deal with that in real time is 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 really um, can be challenging, right? And so being able to share that feedback constantly and, and reiterate that, and and not only sharing information with the vendor, uh, but also having the vendor communicate back out the plans and, and and getting feedback on that is also really important. Yeah, you mentioned something that really caught me, which is just communicating effectively to the product managers and, and other related folks what exactly it is that your problem is and how you can deal with that. In that, um, I, I, actually, I'd like your insight on this, William. Um, I've talked to a bunch of vendors who many of them have told me a lot of us have never been in your seat. We've never actually been working on a network in a virtualization environment um, as a customer. We've only ever been in the vendor world. And so a lot of times the needs are a little mysterious to us. And so it's hard for us to understand what someone is asking for sometime. So getting that communication right is kind of a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not even just the communication aspect of it. A lot of times it's really, you know, sharing insights of like, what are the problems? Like, why is it a problem? Like, why is it a problem that I'm managing 10,000 devices and, and, and there's not an API? Like, why is that a problem? Like, to, to you and I, it's like, well, yeah, if there's 10,000 devices. Why the hell would I want to like SSH each box? I want to have a REST API, blah, blah, blah. And so a lot of times it's really explaining the scenario, you know, the use cases and why you'd want to do something, right? And sometimes it's just writing it down and sort of like, you know, here's here's a setup, here's a problem statement, here's a current solution that's either existing or we're thinking about and kind of going through kind of somewhat of kind of like a pros and cons and just letting them understand it. Because like you said, many of these folks don't come from the background of like, hey, they're a practitioner. We do have some of those product managers that, you know, have come from the field, transitioned to become a product manager. So they have that experience. But over time, right, they're, they're a little bit disconnected from the product. And so obviously they want to talk to customers, but a lot of times you only hear, you know, the issues, right? And they may not be able to pick up on the underlying theme. And so being able to kind of take that to the next level and say, you know, here's your, here's the feedback that you've seen. Here's kind of the, some of the experience I have when I was a customer and I'm still using our products on a regular basis. So the PMs and engineers really do appreciate that because you can actually give them actionable uh, things to do. And a lot of times I think that's sometimes the, the biggest problem, right? Is like sort of customer says, Hey, I want this. Um, but it might take us a year or two to deliver that. Is there something in the interim that can solve the problem? Um, so giving them ideas of like, you know, here's a short-term thing that we could do. Here's a midterm thing that we could do from an engineering standpoint. It's like, well, you know, we don't want to re-architect everything, right? That, that's costly, not only to the engineering organization, does it add value to the customer if we re-architect it, but they get the same behavior. So there may be some trade-off. And so a lot of times it's getting really explicit about like, what could you do here if you were developing like an API or what could we do in the product? Maybe we have a better UX um, that tries to pull in multiple workflows and so that it becomes a better experience for the customer. And so when I talk to a product manager, a lot of it is around like, you know, what, what does it mean for the customer's experience, right? To me, that's really key and critical, not just like UIs, but automation and API, but also what does that impact to our development 
cycle? Are, are we able to move faster or slower? Right? Those are the things that they really care about. And so thinking about it from that aspect of it, when I talk to engineering, it's really like, hey, what is the best way to implement this potentially? You know, there's performance, there's cost, there's, you know, just time effort spent behind it, right? Maybe we can do a really quick workaround uh, in the API um, because we don't have UI mockups, for example. And maybe that is sufficient to solve this particular scenario use cases. But they really do appreciate that, that next level of detail and going into the scenario and really sharing that experience. And it's not just my experience, it's it's the, the collective experience of our customers, our field, and helping them break that down. Because we get feedback left and right, right? I think that's the biggest challenge with any vendor is feedbacks coming in left and right through submissions of, of ideas, feature requests. You know, you have your account teams, you have customers left and right, and how do they digest that? And so for my role, it's really trying to distill a lot of the information into consumable pieces that they can really take an, an action on. Um, and obviously they're taking my feedback along with everybody else's feedback and try to come up with a plan. But sometimes the plans is still kind of very high level and being able to help them take it down the next level and giving them some detail and say, hey, here's what we can do uh, to deliver on this particular goal. Um, so I think keeping in mind of like who you're talking to is really important and kind of what are their motivations because I think you'll have a better chance of moving the needle. Um, and again, my North Star has always been really focusing our customers uh, and, and making sure that we can solve some real problems for them. And so constantly, you know, batting for our customers don't always win in every scenario and don't always win in every, um, you know, debate or, or discussion. Um, but I think it gets them thinking about the customer more. And, and you're really seeing that change across VMware, not just, you know, our, our, our people managers, but also engineering, right? Because they are somewhat disconnected from how this stuff gets operated. And the more that this gets shared um, and internalized, they start to really think about these things and like, hey, if I develop this API, this is how it could be used. So I should really think about operationally, what does this really mean, right? So I think it's a muscle that everybody's constantly developing, but I think for folks who are providing that feedback to kind of think about it in that context and not say, oh, I want this, vendor will solve it and, the world, and we're done. I, you know, I, th I think we need to really look at it as a more iterative approach. William, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and poke into certifications just because it's typically top of mind. People are always like, ah, how do I get ahead? Is certifications, you know, part of that process, not part of that process? So for your career, did certifications play a role? Do they play a role? You know, was it in the past? Is it currently? And, and just general thoughts. Do you think they're evil? Are they a learning blueprint? Are they just something in between? Just give us a, give us kind of a download of your thoughts on certs. Yeah, yeah. No, when I started, definitely focus on certification. I think um, it, it definitely helps, you know, when you're looking to, to make a jump uh, in your career. Um, I also looked at it as just experience. I, I think in the early days, you know, the, um, I think it still exists. It's like the VCAPs, um, where it was like, it's not VCP, where it's just like, hey, I memorize this setting and you're good to go. Um, but you have some hands-on experience. And it was nice of VMware to start to focus on some of that um certification around like, hey, proving some hands-on experience. So I think that's applicable uh, for organizations that want kind of that proof point. Um, you know, and eventually, you know, that kind of led to the VCDX track and all that. So I think certifications are still important, has a role. Um, for me, when I looked at it, it was more of just kind of like getting hands-on experience. Um, and if there was something that associated like, hey, I can get a cert, fantastic. I think it can help in, in, in folks' careers. Um, but I think Certification isn't necessarily the only thing. I think just going out and taking courses, there are just so many online courses these days that, that you can start to take. Um, you know, Amazon has some, a lot of great content out there, you know, YouTube videos. So I think a lot of that is just kind of experience and putting it together. And then I think a certification, you know, could be an end goal for you guys, for somebody, um, just to get some of that, um, you know, 
proof point down there. I know it's, it's, it's valuable for, for somebody that's looking for a new role. Um, but I've always used it as, as just another tool in the tool belt. Um, and, you know, if I can get a cert out of it, fantastic. So in, in, in your role, you have some technical responsibilities, but that is not all you do. So how, do you, how are you feeling these days? Do you feel technical? Uh, and if you have moments where you maybe don't, how, how do you balance all of that with all the other job demands that you have? Yeah, no, my, my role is still very technical. Um, it's interesting that you asked about that. I think, you know, although I still get really technical on some things, I think trying to move the needle in other areas, the the job description actually require, you know, it, it's more of a softer skill. I think that's something I'm still kind of working on um, and, and communicating to a number of different teams um, that have varying uh, differences and, 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 and sort of like, how do you get teams to kind of all agree and move to one point? I, I think these are some of the softer skills that, you know, always hear about. And that in itself is, is, a, is a learning for me actually. And, and just not only saying, hey, this is how we technically can solve it, but how do you kind of move everybody towards a common goal uh, is something that, you know, I'm still working on. And so I think uh, it's actually less on the technical side. I think I, I can get super deep and technical and that's like great. Um, but I think there are these other softer skills as you want to kind of move the needle, uh, either moving your, yourself up in terms of the career or just making a bigger impact. Um, these are things that, you know, people should definitely consider. And I would say that those are things that... Um, that's the balance that I need to play out. Um, don't see myself getting out of technic, you know, doing hands-on stuff, but uh, it's something just to kind of think about uh, longer term. Um, yeah. You know, my takeaway here is that you know, solving a tactical issue versus solving kind of a more strategic issue at scale, as William mentioned, is definitely something that you have to be cognizant of. Sometimes that just requires stepping back, looking at the architecture, trying to find new efficiencies, or trying to find something that's going to solve this problem for the greatest number of people, right? And, and that can be hard. Also, soft skills are hard. It should be called hard skills. I don't know why they're soft. But what's on your mind, even? I just was reminded that vendors really actually care a lot about their products and want you to be happy with them. But yet sometimes on the customer side, we're like, this is terrible. How did they, why would they do this to us? They must hate us so much. Nah, it's just that, you know, not everything comes out right the first time. And if you want to make a change that improves a product and that product's been around for a while and it's used by thousands of people, those changes are hard to make and they just don't happen overnight. doesn't mean the vendor sucks or they hate you. It just means changes take time. And so keep communicating back with your vendor in a, in a reasonable way what it is that you would like to have or what could be improved. And... You know, as William said, lots of inputs coming in from people and they take all of those changes into account. And over time, those things are going to be reflected in the product. I feel like we've had a great meal so far. We had some starters with talking about, you know, what is it you do and, and how do you approach technology and blogging? Then we had the, a, a nice entree, you know, a delicious roast duck of career and work and what you're doing to ma uh, maintain your technical chops and certs and whatnot. Let's get to the dessert. Let's talk about labs, Mac minis, nooks, everything that's going on in like the home lab world. I'm sure everybody is kind of salivating that's listening to the podcast here. So first, let's start at the basics here. Describe your current lab environment. Tell us, you know, at a high level, what devices, software, clouds, anything interesting about your home lab. And, and just for those listening, I will also include a link to William's home lab page in the show notes. 
Yeah. Ooh, desserts. I love desserts. Um, <laughs> funny enough, like, so I mean, you guys know I, I do a lot of stuff in the home lab. My personal home lab, it's actually not that crazy uh, for a number of reasons. What? I was expecting something like half a room, $5,000 <laughs> a month in power charges and Oh, no. I, th I think my wife would kill me. Uh, so there's nothing in our living room, luckily. I actually have a, a home office now, finally. Um, but uh, no, it's actually a fairly okay lab. I wouldn't say it's crazy. I mean, I definitely have a lot of random stuff all over the house. Um, just stuff that I'm tinkering with. Like now I'm working with like nano pies, raspberry four pies and all that. Uh, but for my home lab, for, for you know some of the stuff that I'm doing on a regular basis, I just have a regular Intel Nook. You know, these are like little cube four by four box. Um, this is actually a sixth generation system. This is actually, uh, I think like four or five years old. So it's, it's actually, it's been humming along. It's, it's no longer being produced anymore. So like you can see how old the system is. Um, but I recently upgraded to 64 gigs of memory. Um, so a couple months back, you know, people were kind of wondering like, Hey, could we load these things up with 64 gigs of memory? Um, you know, uh, Samsung was one of the first to release these uh, 32 gig sodium memory chips. And they're fairly expensive and nobody was really sure. And Intel kind of says, hey, the max of these boxes are 32 gigs, right? And I figured that um, for the newer systems, which are these uh, eighth generation um, Nooks or the Hades Canyon. So these are kind of like these i7 um, boxes, pretty beefy. It has like Thunderbolt 3, dual M.2 devices. So they're fairly beefy. You can run vSphere, vSAN, some NSX on there. Yeah, I was, was going to ask, like, is, is the 64 gig of memory, is that, are, are we too memory tolerant there is there enough power in the cpu and the bus to like do something with that much memory? oh yeah yeah oh yeah you okay. can oh yeah you can take advantage of it. but nobody was sure right and, and <sighs> the thing was that you know apple announced the 2018 mac mini you know obviously back in 2018 fall they were kind of the first vendor to officially support 64 gig memory um in this kind of smaller form factor so dim that you know these are basically laptop memory right so when that came out i say well hmm they're supporting it intel has has these nooks you know since um it's like four or five years. So like, yeah, 2013, 2014 timeframe. And so it's like, well, Apple's finally released it. So I think really when they did their announcement, you know, the, the memory, the memory uh, space was just, you know, getting to producing these, these 32 gig modules. So I had worked with some vendors of ours to say, Hey, could I get some of these, these devices? And they're like, yeah, they're still being manufactured. And around, I think January of last year or, or middle last year, um, I finally got my hands on these these modules and I figured like, okay, if this is going to work, it's going to work on the latest generation of, of, of the Intel Nooks, right? Like that should be a given. Plug them in there, they worked. And I was like, okay, not too surprised, but still surprised because again, nobody assumed it would work. And I said, okay, well, I got the sixth generation Intel Nook. Let me just try it. Like it's not going to hurt. Hopefully it doesn't blow up the system. <laughs> and luckily it didn't. Um, and I was floored that it actually worked. So this box that's like four or five years old, end of life, you know, that technically 32 gigs of memory would is the, the limit that that's been noted, um, but it actually fully supported it. And I was like, wow, this is really a game changer. Like you literally have a box that you purchased, you know, a couple hundred bucks four years ago. If you spent about another, you know, 180 at the time, I think now they're like 140 and you can literally double your memory capacity, right? So these things max out at 32 gigs of memory. So you can run a fair amount of VMware software on there. Um, but obviously we know that we want a lot more stuff and be with, more memory is always better. And so literally spending a couple hundred bucks, you can double your memory capacity. Same CPUs. And most people don't really use too much of the CPU. That's generally not the, um, the constraining yeah. factor. Some customers do use it uh, a little bit harder. Um, but I was like, wow, this works. So I blogged about it. And people started buying the memory and trying it, you know, basically between fifth generation and eighth generation. So they're like, hey, sixth generation, it works. Seventh generation, it works. Eighth, all the. And so literally like 
overnight, <laughs> um, everybody's like just doubling up their memory and, and people, and I still get the tweets like, oh no, thanks for this because now they're able to literally double the memory capacity, add more workloads. Um, you know, in their existing investment. So that's been, that's been huge. Um, so well, like I said, before like, you blog something like that in the future, so I can put some money into the features <laughs> because apparently you overnight, like doubled the sales of SO oh, dims. I, oh man. I, you know, I, I should have pinged Samsung. I was like, Hey, you know, we need to work out a, a deal. Like, here buy or some stock insider trading. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just give me some memory. I'm, I'm cool with that as well. So I, I, I went out and bought a pair for myself because I, I was like, I needed it. Right. But yeah, I really don't have a fancy lab. I have one Intel Nook. It's running vSAN. So it has an M.2 MVM device um, and because this system so old it, it still has kind of like a SATA connector so that's my capacity tier uh, and, and that's really what I've been using for a lot of the work I do um, if I need something that's kind of local um, to my testing I, I spend a lot of time you know working on you know future releases of our software um, especially on ESXi so I'm constantly rebuilding doing that work um, and running latest vSphere update 2 uh, because I'm constantly rebuilding I'm able to you know deploy the latest version of it uh, and that's like physically in my lab. I mean, I have other stuff there. I, I have like a old school Mac that I don't really use a whole lot. Um, I'm just looking at right now, just naming some stuff off. Well, like and earlier you're talking about Thunderbolt 3. So you, so you have yeah. all 10 gig for this lab? Uh, well? No. So funny enough, so I, I do all this like uh, research and, and testing and and, and, and and hitting the financial book. I'm not even using 10 gig. To be I, to be personally honest, I have no use for 10 gig in, in my infrastructure. I have like one gig link connected to like a dummy hub. And that's like more than enough for, for the work that I do. Um, but I, I do know that we do have a number of people in the community that really want to push it. They have a need for 10 gig. Either they're doing this in production. They want to run NSX. They want to run Visa. And they actually run a sizable workload. Like I only have a handful of VMs that I have running. Right. And so a lot of the research into like, Hey, getting 10, you know, Thunderbolt three and, and, and easily adding a 10 gig Nick. Right. So here you're basically spending like 150 bucks. You now have a, a, a 10 gigabit ethernet copper, that you can plug right into your Nook and it just works. We have a we've been working with the with a vendor called Aquanta, um, that's been very helpful in that space. And so I, I had a blog post of like here are like four different NICs that you can purchase, and that adds ten gigabit into your infrastructure. Yeah, I need my multi NIC vMotion. I mean, come on. I've, yeah, exactly. I don't um, want to be a poor fellow with my virtually ghetto. I want virtually upper middle class <laughs> ghetto. Enterprise plus. Um, and yeah, and, and then, you know, I started looking, I was like, well, how do we expand storage? Cause these boxes are fairly constrained, right? Like it, it comes with one built-in NIC. Um, and so people want to be able to do things like multi V motion. I want to do different traffic types. And so I always kind of think about like, what else could we do to this form factor and, and all the different technology. And I think it's taken us some time, right? Like Thunderbolt three and Thunderbolt in general was really prevalent in the Apple world. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in that space to help people because there's there's a lot of virtualization happening in that space. A lot of people aren't, don't realize that. Um, you know, any Fortune 100, 500 company you can think of that has iOS or macOS presence, they have to develop for it. And and per Apple's EULA, you have to develop on an Apple system. And so it works for like a mom and pop shop. But if you're talking about like a large enterprise, um, like Uber, for example, um, they were actually up at stage at VMware last year with one of our partners, Mac Stadium, and they develop against, you know, vSphere and, the, and they leverage the platform. And so a lot of this technology, some of it's done from kind of the Apple work. And I'm like, well, can we take that and apply that more generically to standard x86 and add more networking capabilities, right? So that's where the kind of 10 gig E stuff have come into. But we've also done some work around like, hey, can we use Thunderbolt 3 because it's just PCIe pass-through? And could we expand it and basically daisy chain a number of MVME devices? So there's some really interesting chassis out there that allows you to do that. And so I had a blog post out there recently around daisy chain Thunderbolt 3. So you can have like one, two, three, up to six devices. And so now on this one little tiny nook, 
I can actually have six MVME high-speed devices set up a humongous vSAN cluster. And you can imagine if you have like one, two, three of these guys, you can have a fairly beefy lab. Um, and, and as I talk through this, I'm like, this is cool, right? I'm not using any of that stuff, which is the sad part about it. <laughs> so there's, there's all this gear lying around. And but again, it, it, it's exciting for me to be able to share that and, and figure some of this stuff out. Um, some of this is not like me figuring out. I have to work with engineering um, and figuring out like, hey, here's the use case for it. You know, would you mind helping me out um, getting this out? Because I think there's a benefit not only to VMware, but to our customers as well. Now, you were mentioning Apple devices as well um, and, and had done some work there. So okay, I've got a late 2012 Mac Mini. I just retired. It used to be a video editing workstation and it became became underpowered. And so I replaced it. Do I, is that a, a, a something I can do, make it into a lab machine and do something interesting with it? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, as long as it's not the 2018 Mac Minis, um, there, there's, a, there's a challenge with new system, which is this new T2 security chip, right? That, that basically mm -hmm. prevents you from running. Uh, we can run our software, but we can't do much with the local drive and all that. And we're still working out the kinks and maybe something will come out of it but anything prior to 2018 mac minis yeah absolutely i mean i have a 2011 model um that i still use occasionally especially for mac os testing and esxi runs perfectly and i still remember like six seven years ago you had to do all sorts of hacks and trickery do backflips just to get the thing booted up and i'm not even talking about installing it and I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of really, really smart engineers, you know, adding various tweaks into our ESXi installer such that installing it on a Mac Mini or Mac Pro or whatever, it's just like installing on any other x86 system. And so if you've decommissioned it for like video editing, it's a perfect platform. They're very quiet, actually. Uh, yeah. And you can, yeah. you can still get them on eBay or wherever. They're fairly cheap and all that. And so if you're just starting out, that's a perfect platform to get used to, or the Nooks is another great alternative. So yeah, definitely, definitely something you can repurpose and and, and run the latest greatest uh, vSphere. Like there's no limits on that, which is really fantastic. So we we got a lot of information on you know what's what's your home lab situation, and I, I'm honestly I think it's pretty cool the amount of investment you put into just kind of tinkering to see what will work and then sharing that since not everyone has like the time and budget and expertise to do that. And so I want to move into kind of a final thought question here. And just thinking about home labs and just really tinkering in general, is there any solutions you would advise for building out, you know, for a lab, for an IT operator or an engineer, you know, uh, things about low wattage home labs, cloud labs, simulated learning? Is there any area that you prefer to focus on? It sounds like nooks and really low power stuff is part of it. Maybe a little bit of like something like Code Academy, but where would you advise someone that's looking to kind of maybe start or, or move along in the early stages of the journey? with getting hands-on, getting some lab work, things like that. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I think the Intel Nook is definitely a good starting point. That's It's definitely a good one with a very small amount of investment. You know, a lot of people bring up budgeting, and I totally get it, and, and I don't have unlimited budget either. I have to negotiate with how much my wife's spending. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's a worthy investment, uh, not only just learning about the software, but you can kind of build up newer skill sets like automations, API, um, operationalizing systems. So I, I would say from a from a starting point, Intel Nooks, you know, you're spending a you know 500 bucks or so, you can have a fairly decent lab. Um, once you kind of move up that journey, you know, there's a there's a super micro box that can go up to 128 gigs all the way up to like 256 gigs of memory. So fairly sizable these are xeon based processors so you can really start to make a jump for it you're, you're looking about a, like a thousand plus in, in that range um if you still want something that's like physically in your presence i know actually a number of folks in the community said hey i, I don't want to run any of this stuff it's just too hot it's kicking up the power bill i, I want to run cloud 
Um, you know, there are some options even in the cloud. You know, I think there's some offerings still from Ravello, VMware Cloud and AWS. I know some folks have actually started to standardize that. Some of that is working with their vendors um, and, and, and doing some of that. Um, but in addition to what I've mentioned, one thing that a lot of people still don't realize is you can actually run nested virtualization, right? And so you can have a physical presence, but you can start to deploy your infrastructure as nested appliances. I actually have a nested ESXi virtual appliance that you can quickly spin up. And so now you can start to deploy any kind of topology, whether it's NSX, vSAN, VRA, and you can codify these things. I have a number of scripts that basically codifies a particular setup. And so if I need to deploy a lab, I don't need to spend time like, oh, deploy this. I download the bits, right? Update the, the bomb and run a script and deploy it. And again, I'm able to do this primarily because of automation, um, but because of using nested technology, you can actually start to deploy this stuff purely in software. So the investment of hardware, in my opinion, doesn't really matter. The, you know, obviously costing is a factor, um, but once you've got that basic piece of hardware functionality, think about leveraging nested virtualization to mimic what you might plan on doing in production, mimic a scenario, maybe you're studying for your VCAPs or your VCDX. And that to me is still, a lot of people are using it, but I still think it's still very undervalued uh, on the things that you can do in software. And it kind of goes back to like this whole software defined concept and you can literally run most of what we ship today as nested ESXi uh, virtual appliances and set that up. And then if something breaks, tear down and redeploy it. I think that's still a really powerful capability that uh, um, many folks should definitely consider when they're first starting out. Right on. Well, you, you actually got me more interested in Nooks than ever. I, I really haven't touched <laughs> them in four or five years. So maybe, maybe I'll take a look at that. Um, we're going to wrap up here, but I wanted you to get a chance to let folks that maybe want to continue this conversation further after the show, uh, where can they get a hold of you? Where's your blog? Just give a shout out for your Twitter account, that kind of jazz. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, yeah, so I, uh, you can find me on uh, virtuallyghetto.com. I'm also really active on Twitter at uh, lambw. Um, also hanging out in various Slack channels and either the vexperts or the code.vmwarren. So a number of places you can reach out to me. And if I have a chance, uh, more than happy to help out or connect you with some, some other folks. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, that's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter and my blog is wallnetwork.com. And my delightful friend Ethan is at EC Banks on Twitter and he's blogging over at packetpushers.net. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, visit packetpushers.net, the internet home for all of our IT podcasts, blogs, and news by and for serious IT professionals. If you learned something today, share this episode with your colleagues because, I mean, hey, that's kind of the point, right? And if your company is interested in appearing on a future episode, of the show, we'd love to work with you to craft an engaging narrative as a sponsor of the show. Until then, my friends, may your server lights blink, your lab consume the smallest power load, and your cables be cleanly managed. Here's, 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 here's.